listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. We are in the middle of a series called Vision for Life, where we're discussing, discovering, rediscovering God's vision, God's mission for every single life, every single family, every single church. This applies not only in your life and in your family and in this church, it applies to every life, every family, every church, any place in the world. We've been discussing, we've been looking at God's core values, the core values that we find in scripture for every life, every family, every church, any place in the world. And today is no exception. We're going to dive into this particular passage of scripture as we look at a new core value, a new value for your life, a new value for your family, a new value for the church that is actually an ancient value. Now, unlike the other core values that we've looked at, this particular value is also God's vision for your life. It's his mission for your life and for your family and for my family. It's not just a value, it's also a vision and a mission. And here it is in the word of God, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He begins with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema in Israel. In Judaism, it's known as the Shema, that that word is the word that's translated into English, hear. Interesting that the prayer would begin with not talking but listening. How about that for a lesson on prayer? We've learned enough right there that the foundational prayer in all of Judaism, which is timeless and applicable for us today, the Shema, begins with not talking, but listening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You know, what's fascinating about this passage of scripture is that Jesus is digging down deep. He's digging down really deep here. And he does something that you probably wouldn't do, that I probably wouldn't do, because when you consider all of the commands in the Old Testament, where would you go? Where would you go to find the number one of all the commands? After all, there are 365 negative commands. By negative, I mean 
do not statements, don't do this, don't do that. 365 of them. And then there are 248 positive commands or do this commands. Yes, do this, do that. And when you do the math and you add up 365 and 248, you get, of course, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And so this common debate that would rage among the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this common debate was, well, which one is the most important? And Jesus' answer is stellar because what he does is he helps us understand that the teachings of Christianity are ancient but practical and relevant and pertinent for your life and mine, for your family and mine, for your church and mine, for everybody, anywhere, every place. Because you need to understand that the roots of Christianity are planted firmly in the soil of Judaism. The roots of Christianity are planted firmly in the soil of Judaism, the teachings of the Old Testament. Because what Jesus does here, out of all the 613 commandments that he could have pulled from, you and I might pick maybe from the top 10 list, the 10 commandments. Jesus doesn't do that. What he does is he reaches way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And that book that you've been spending a majority of your time as a follower of Jesus Christ in, the book of Leviticus. That book about mold and mildew and bodily discharges that actually God used in my life to lead me to Christ. I remember reading a Dear Abby column. Abigail Van Buren had this column, Dear Abby, and people would write in and ask her questions about a variety of things, and that thing that used to be known as a newspaper, you know, they used to cut down trees and grind them up and make from the pulp this thing called paper print before the age of electronic devices and pads and smart devices that typically tend to dumb us down. Yeah, you know what I mean. I was reading Dear Abby one day, and in that, somebody wrote in about Leviticus, and I opened up my Bible to the book of Leviticus. I had a Bible, being raised Roman Catholic, did the catechism, went to Sunday school in the Catholic church, and I was reading the book of Leviticus, scratched my head, didn't make much sense to me about this mold and mildew issue. Now I understand that Jesus is throughout the book of Leviticus, a primary fundamental book about holiness. Holiness is what the book of Leviticus is all about. Well, they asked Jesus, what's the most important of all the commandments? And Jesus said, the most important is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus gives the shortest of all of his sermons that he ever gave in one sentence, there is no commandment greater than these. And with that, his sermon is done, but the repercussions of that, the implications of that were only just beginning. Because the scribe was asking a question that the people were asking in their day. It was a relevant, practical question, and you need to ask it today because it's relevant and practical for your life and for mine. What is the most important thing in life? What is life all about? 
thank you. Get up here and finish this message. Yes, all of life is about Jesus, but which Jesus? Our reconstituted, recreated Jesus? Our sanitized Jesus, recreated by members of the nighttime Bible reading society who read their Bibles at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed? Try that and you'll miss major portions of Scripture. You won't see the whole Bible for as it's supposed to be read and understand and interpreted, interpreting itself from Genesis to Revelation. No, we need to rediscover and many of us discover for the first time the biblical Jesus. The Jesus who takes us to the roots of Christianity which are found in the soil of Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is doing here is painting with a big brush. He's casting vision. He's helping us understand the context of the entire Old Testament. He's helping us understand the context in our day of the entire New Testament. He's helping us understand how we interpret all of the Bible. Why are those 365 no statements, do not statements there? Why are all of the 248 yes statements, do statements there? Why are all the 613 commandments in the Old Testament there? Why are they there? Because through them we understand how to love God and how to love our neighbor. If you haven't guessed it yet, one of the core values in your life, one of the core values in your family, one of the core values in my life and my family, one of the core values in our church and every church, if you're listening by radio or podcast, must be the value of relationships. Not just relationships in general, but relationships that are characterized by love. Every relationship that you have, every relationship that I have, every single one must be characterized by L-O-V-E, love. What's amazing about this passage of Scripture is that we have a teacher, a scribe, coming up to the teacher of teachers asking him a question, and then almost nudging in a little bit, almost trying to get a bit of a platform and begin to do his own teaching and almost trying to usurp Jesus. And then Jesus ends the whole dialogue by saying, you know what, you're right. Recognizing that I'm right, do you realize how close you are to the kingdom of God? Later in the book of Philippians, we would read that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. The word that Paul used there, Lord, actually is the same word that's used for God. That's the way it's used in other contexts throughout the scriptures. That's the whole point that he's bringing. Not that just Jesus is an important person or significant person, that Jesus is more than just a person. He must be God of your life, must be God of your family, must be God of your church, must be God in every part, every recess of your life. And that's the irony of this teacher meeting the teacher of teachers that he did not realize that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ, the one standing right before him, is the teacher of teachers, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's how close that guy was to the kingdom of God. That's how close he was. You know, you can hear the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible all you want and only be close to the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? Pausing purposely for dramatic effect, yes. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, pay attention. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. How do you know? the passion of somebody's life. You know, the word passion has been hijacked today. It's been reduced to a term that refers to what happens in the bedroom or in the backs of cars. In circumstances and situations, whether it's the context of marriage or outside of the context of marriage, and now, unfortunately, the redefinition of marriage, passion has been reduced to just referring to a physical thing, a physical interaction between two people, an act of passion, a crime of passion. No, passion has to do with what happens in your heart, what happens in your soul, what happens in your mind, what happens with your strength. You shall love the Lord your God with passion. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's how you know whether or not you are passionate about God, whether your family is passionate about God, whether your church is passionate about God. How do you know what someone's passion is? By what's going on in their heart, in their soul, in the mind, the secret, unseen arenas of the life. Actually, they're not so secret after all. They eventually come out in our strength. Everything you do is a reflection. Everything I do is a reflection. Everything that's happening in your marital relationship and in your family is a reflection of whether or not you're passionate, whether or not I'm passionate, whether or not we are passionate about God and about people. 
can almost hear some of the other scribes, possibly maybe if we were a fly on the wall, we would have seen the look on their faces, the consternation, because they asked Jesus for one Don't you love Jesus as the master communicator that he is? Could you just give us one? Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one, but I'll do even better. I'll give you two and show you that they're one. (laughs) I'll give you two and show you how it's impossible to separate these two. And in understanding two commandments from probably unlikely sources when you consider Leviticus 19, 18, I'll show you how you're out of your mind to think that it's possible to love the almighty God who is invisible without loving your neighbor who is visible. So we do it all the time. We think it's possible to love God without loving people. To be passionate about God, to be somebody who's really a lover of God, somebody who's in love with God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, cannot help but manifest itself in how you treat your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? If you're married, your immediate neighbor is your spouse. Do you love your spouse? Treat your spouse the way God treats you? Your neighbor is your coworker. Your neighbor is your boss. Your neighbor is your partner in ministry. Your neighbor is your neighbor neighbor. Haven't you noticed that there's no area of life that can safely be separated from relationships? You might sit at a computer all day long. You might be a bookworm and have very little interaction with people, but eventually, eventually, every area of your life, one way or another, will be impacted by your relationships with people and people's relationships with you. There's no area of life that doesn't eventually get impacted by relationships. Even your work, even if you have very little interaction with people in the course of your day, is your work separated from impacting somebody's life somewhere? See, you say things to people that you shouldn't say. We've said things to people that we shouldn't say. We've done things to people that we shouldn't have done. The older I get, the more I realize in my before Christ days and even in my after Christ days. B.C., A.C., has it gotten hot in here? I've done things to people that shouldn't have been done. I don't deserve to be forgiven and neither do you. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about God. And getting back to God, you and I need to understand that the ways in which we treat people are shouting to all the people in our lives what's going on in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds 
in that arena of strength, in our passion or lack of passion, in loving God. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our strength, with all the mind, with all the soul. There is not an area of our lives, not a single area that we can justify in holding back in giving God our love through that area. Not a single area of our lives. The teachings of Jesus are as relevant and pertinent and practical and applicable today as they were in his day, as they were before his birthday in the Old Testament. He's helping us understand the way that we interpret the Bible. How do we interpret the Bible? We interpret the Bible and we therefore interpret and understand all of life in the context of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourself. There is no commandment, Jesus says, greater than these. No commandment greater than these. That's what it comes down to. If you want God's vision for your life, there it is. You want God's marching orders for your life, his mission for your life, there it is. You want to understand something that should be of the utmost value in your life and in your family and in your business, which is God's business. There is no business that's not God's business. Your work matters to God because through your work, you have the opportunity to be passionate with the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Exercise strength for God in the workplace. Got an opportunity to love your neighbor, and in so doing, by loving your neighbor, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, with everything that is within you. You've got an opportunity to demonstrate that you are a lover of God in these days where talk is cheap. Talk is so cheap. See, it's easy in your life and in mine to get distracted by things. We want to do things with our lives. Men, we want to do things. We want to build things. We want to get caught up in things. And we have toys. The only thing that changes from boyhood to adulthood is the expensive nature of the toys that we buy. And many times we shouldn't buy. And we know that by the look on our spouse's faces when we bring them home. And like bad boys, we didn't ask for permission before we purchased. You know what I'm saying. Ladies, you do something similar. You get caught up in things, distractions. Life is not about things. Life is about a person. And life is about people. That's what life is about. God's vision for your life and his vision for your family. God's vision for my life and his vision for my family. His mission for your life and for my family and for your church and for mine, for everybody on the face of the earth. God's vision and his mission 
and his value is that we would be characterized by loving God and loving people. There is no pursuit anywhere that you could go. Not in a movie theater, not on the internet, not in your workplace, not in a book. No pursuit in the course of your life that trumps loving the Lord your God with that type of a passion, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. There is no commandment greater than these in our individual lives and in our families and in the workplace and in the church. What is it that has distracted us from life itself? You know, an interesting thing is that somebody could look at this passage of Scripture and say, ah, can't we just love? Can't we just let bygones be bygones? See, it is about love. Doesn't love win? Can't somebody have whatever lifestyle they want? Can't we just let them love whoever they want to love, however they want to love that person? And it sounds like a pretty good argument until we realize that you started that argument by trying to use Scripture to support it. Huh? Mm? Okay, now you've got a problem. Because if you're going to use Scripture to try to support that argument and say, well, see, love wins. We should all allow people to love. You have to understand that if you're going to start with Scripture or twist Scripture by only using part of Scripture to base your argument upon, you have to understand those 613 commandments and the other 65 books outside of Mark, and you have to understand that if we're going to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, we better understand how He wants to be loved, which has been revealed to us in the manual for love, the owner's manual, the Bible. See, it would be an exercise in futility, and I think actually even worse than that, foolishness of the utmost foolishness, poster child for foolishness, to think that we could try to love God after redefining what love means. We cannot be selective in the scriptures that we read in our attempts and in our quest to love God. If we want to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, the manual has been provided for us and it is called the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God's handbook for how we love God. You will not love a God. Listen to me. You will not love a God you do not know. The only way to love God is to know that God, and the only way to know that God is to be into the Word of God, the Bible. And that's the way Interestingly enough, that you will learn and I will learn how to love your neighbor as yourself as well. Who are we to think that we are smarter? We're smarter than the God of his word. 
Jesus is said very clearly in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter one, and the word became flesh and lived among us for a while. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, anyone on the side of truth listens to me. If you want truth and you want to know how to love God, you want truth and you want to know how to love your neighbor, you better go to the source of truth, which is the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to love your neighbor as yourself and how to love God in the way that matters, the only way that matters, which is on God's terms, you better revisit the Bible. Because you don't want to be surprised at the end of your life, do you? How foolish it would be to go about the course of your life and to pursue loving God, attempting to love God, attempting to live life by your own terms as if you were the standard of truth, as if I were the standard of truth, as if somebody with a PhD after their name or a few alphabets before their name was more an authority than Jesus Christ. Not true. Not true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, still is God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us for a while. His name is Jesus, and if you want the truth, and I want the truth, and we want to align ourselves with the truth, we have to be in the Word of God because that is how we understand how to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, and with all the mind, and with all our strength. That's how we learn what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. That's how we learn how to put into practice what must not just be heard. Understanding the word of God, I don't know what happened to this scribe after he heard what Jesus said Because once he heard what Jesus said, then came the moment of accountability, the moment of truth. What would this scribe do with the truth that he just heard? What will you do, what will I do with this truth that we are hearing, discovering, and rediscovering from the mouth of Jesus? There is no commandment, no pursuit No vision, no mission, no value greater than loving the Lord our God with all of the heart and all of the soul and all of the mind and all of the strength. There is no commandment greater than loving your neighbor as yourself. See, we want to love God in a vacuum. We think that we can love God in a vacuum, lock ourselves in a room, have an awesome time in the Bible and an awesome time in prayer, while all along there might be unforgiveness towards somebody, bitterness towards somebody, critical spirit towards somebody. Do we see how insane that is? How ridiculous that is? How carnal that is. How 
absolutely, classically, fundamentally unspiritual that is. Do we see how absolutely unloving that is? It is not possible. Try it. Try to prove Jesus wrong. It is not possible to love the Lord your God. Listen. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. How do you know whether or not you love the Lord your God with increasing passion? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You just need to look to your left and to your right. You need to look at your relationships with your family members and your coworkers and people in the house of God and people who might even have treated you the way people treated Jesus and the way people treat Jesus all the time. You can tell whether or not a person loves God. You can tell to what degree a person loves God by how they are loving or how they are not loving people. In fact, you can tell whether or not somebody is really encountering God by reading that Bible as we remember the Pharisees, as we remember the scribe who was close but no cigar unless he applied the truth, unless he acknowledged who was standing before him. He was close to the kingdom of heaven. Did he make it into the kingdom of God? We don't know. It's to be continued. But he was close. Hearing the word of God puts you very close to getting in to the kingdom of God. Being knowledgeable of the word of God doesn't make you somebody who encounters the God of his word. You can tell whether or not your time in the word of God is a waste of time. But whether or not your time in the Word of God gets you to live outside of your comfort zone and love your neighbor as yourself. See, we all want to be loved. We all want our neighbor to love us. You let the Word of God get in you with a bent on your part to put it into action. And God's Word will come out of you. It's the whole purpose of that manual that we have called the Bible not just to stimulate gray matter. Listen, if you're new in your marriage, young in your marriage, the best gift you can give to your spouse is your commitment to submit to God by submitting to his word. You know it's not possible to submit to God if you're not submitting to the God of his word. Where do we come up with this idea that we can read the Bible, not submit to it, and still love God? Where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. Some Pharisaic spirit, that's where it came from. And it is that attitude of treating the Bible as an academic book only Yes, it's an academic book, but it's not just an academic book. Treating the Bible as an academic book only. Treating it only as Bible study. How about Bible meditation? 
to meditate on the word of God for the purpose of application. I don't care if you're newly married. You could be married for a very long time. It applies to you as well. You might not be married. It applies to you as well. Whatever your course in life, no matter how old you are, if you've got a Bible, you are close to the kingdom of God. You don't want to be close. You want no space between God of that kingdom and yourself. You want to walk closely with the Lord, knowing the word gospel is not going to change your life. Drives me nuts these days to hear fellow pastors talking about the word gospel as if it has some magical power behind it. you got to have gospel-centered preaching and a gospel-centered church as if just the utterance of the word gospel is going to... Oh! He said the word gospel. Hearing the word gospel doesn't change anything. Hearing the Bible doesn't change anything. You know what the gospel is? You've got to preach the gospel. You've got to teach the gospel. You do to your family members and to your neighbors, and if necessary, use words. That's right. With a transformed lifestyle. What is the gospel? We need to make the gospel clear, not just use the word gospel. The gospel is that. Jesus Christ, who had no sin at all in his life, in his heart, in his soul, in his mind, never uttered one wrong word, never thought one wrong word. Not once was there any inclination in Jesus at all. He had no sin at all. Went onto the cross for you and for me and took every single one of your sins, every single one of my sins so that you and I and anyone could become the righteousness of God. The truth of the matter is that I don't think the most difficult, painful thing for Jesus was the scourging with the cat and nine tails. I don't think it was the fact that Jesus was spat upon. I don't think that that's what really hurt him. I don't think the rejection by the leaders of Israel really got to him. Or the rejection of the Roman soldiers and the pronouncement of, go ahead, you can crucify him. I don't think that really got to Jesus. I don't even think the abandonment by his disciples really caused Jesus the agony in the ultimate sense of the word. I don't even think that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat was coming out of his skin with this condition probably of hematidrosis where the blood vessels burst just beneath the skin and come out, I don't even think that Jesus was agonizing over the idea of his physical suffering. It was the idea that on that cross, he who knew no sin would bear your sin and mine. He who was never ever apart from his father was now for the very first time separated. That's the biblical definition of death, to be separated from God. That on that cross, Jesus was experiencing separation from his father, and that is what led him to say, my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Don't let anybody tell you that the gospel is free. It's free 
for you in your own experience because it didn't cost you a dime. It cost Jesus everything. Beginning with the separation from his father that every single one of us deserves for an eternity. Permanent separation from God. That's what's referred to in the book of Revelation, the second death. The second death is permanent, eternal separation from God. The bad news is that you have sinned and I have sinned. Everybody has sinned. The good news is the gospel explained is that Jesus took your sin on that cross for himself, paid a price that you were incapable of paying. In his sinlessness, that's why he was fully God. In his humanity, there had to be a one-for-one sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sin. He paid that penalty on himself and experienced the separation that for you otherwise, and for me otherwise, for each and every one of us otherwise, would be eternal. And that through faith in who he is and faith in his finished work on the cross, remember Jesus said, it is finished. You can have eternal life. I can have eternal life. And not just have eternal life, but get passionate about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and get serious about loving our neighbor as ourself. Have that not just as a vision, but a reality for our lives. Not just as a mission, but something that's actually manifest in our lives. Have that not just as a core value, but an all-consuming core value. That now that you are forgiven and now that I am forgiven that we know the way the truth and the life that anyone on the side of the of truth listens to Jesus now that we know that we don't just have our gray matter stimulated in our heads we have our hearts transformed and our hands and our feet and we start to get Busy, not just knowing the greatest of all the commandments, but knowing the commandment giver himself and loving him with all the heart and all the soul and all the mind and all the strength and manifesting that by loving our neighbor as ourselves. You want to know how it gets done? That's what it means to be passionate for Jesus Christ. That's what it means to love God. It doesn't get any more practical than that. It doesn't get any more transformational than that. You can put that in whatever pipe you typically smoke and take that to the bank with you. That's what it means. Practically speaking, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself The way you love people is the reflection, the clearest reflection, the most obvious reflection, not just to other people of how you love God, but ultimately to God Almighty himself. Understand that when you allow something to be unsettled in a relationship that you know needs to be settled with another person. You are hindering 
God's vision for your life, his mission for your life, this value of loving him with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. We need to understand that there's a direct correlation between our being hindered in our love for God, which can escape us, and our love for people. If you are willing to let your love for people diminish, you are also making a choice to let your love for God also diminish. If you want to increase your love for God in your personal life, in your family, in the body of Christ, at the workplace, wherever you might be, the way to increase your love for God is to increase your love for people. Who is it that you need to forgive? Who is it that you need to ask forgiveness from? What human relationship or relationships are screaming at you, shouting at you? You don't really love God. This is one of the reasons why our Bible meditation time is so hindered. D.L. Moody said it so correctly. This book, the Bible, will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. It's a good thing. Listen to me. When you read your Bible and God blindsides you with a relational issue, look at how practical it is. People, God. People, God. People, God. There you were trying to get some time with the Lord, snuggling up with him. Just want to cuddle up with the Lord and get some time in the Bible, which I highly encourage. And boom, out of nowhere, God speaks to you about a relationship issue. That's supposed to happen. Did you not know that when you read the Bible? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing bones from marrow, revealing the secret intentions of the heart. Wow! God has given to you and to me such a book that we couldn't write if we would, wouldn't write if we could, if we could. The Bible. Wouldn't write if we could, couldn't write if we would. It's not just a human book. It is the book of God. It is a good thing for you to be before the Lord, to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. The way you know the voice of the Holy Spirit is because he speaks with specificity. Make this right. And then you and me, like the scribe, are given the choice. Okay. You're close. Now finish what needs to get done. Listen to me. This is how practical and relevant and pertinent and timeless the ancient teachings of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 and Leviticus 19, 18, that book that we don't think is so practical today. This is how relevant it is here in the 21st century. You want to love God? Get your act together in how you love people. You start loving people, that's the way you love God. And far be it from you, far be it from me, to try to make it anything different. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. 
We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.